In the reading and proclamation of your word, O Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance, and your incomparably great power for we who believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Paul, as we know, is writing this epistle from prison in Rome. He's in prison because of false charges. Charges that he had defiled the temple by bringing in Gentiles. And that he was teaching all men everywhere against the Jews and their temple and the law. You can read about that in Acts 21. And here in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul mentions that he's in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. And he's about to continue a prayer, but he breaks off for another excursion before picking up his prayer again in verse 14. And the reason that Paul breaks off his prayer is that he wishes to be clear about why it is that he is in prison. So from verses 2 to 12, he explains. Paul's in prison essentially because he's an apostle to the Gentiles. To the churches and seemingly all of Jerusalem, this was common knowledge. We know he told his story regularly of having met with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, that he was commissioned by Christ, chosen instrument, that he was sent to carry Christ's name before Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And you can read about that also in Acts chapters 9 and 22. And it was at that time a revelation was given to Paul. And he describes the revelation as a mystery. And it's the same mystery that he had already mentioned briefly in chapter 1. And the mystery revealed is in verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now Paul says in verse 4 that this is a fairly unique insight given to him. In previous generations it hadn't been known, but now it's revealed through the apostles and the prophets. So when you look at what the prophets did reveal in the Old Testament, it's clear that the Gentiles would indeed be included in God's plan of redemption. So, for example, God's promise to Abraham was that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. And Isaiah's vision was that in the last days the mountain of the Lord's people would be a step of the Lord's temple would be established, and all nations would stream into it. Many people will come and say, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. He'll teach us his ways so that we might walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And what's consistent about the prophets is that they understood the inclusion of the Gentiles as happening when the nations came under the law, when the Gentiles were converted to Judaism circumcised and purified according to the law of Moses. Inclusion of the Gentiles in that sense was not new at all. But what's new 
is that inclusion is now not through the law, but as Paul says in verse 6, inclusion is through the gospel. The Gentiles now are not Jews via the back door. They're actually something new. They're members together of one new body in Christ Jesus. And because of their inclusion in Christ, they're heirs with believing Israel to all the promises of God. Now that's the message and the commission that Paul received directly from Christ Jesus the Lord. And that's the message that landed him in jail. But he's certainly not bitter or angry about his predicament. In fact, he sees his commission as a gift of God's grace. Have a look at verse 7. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And as far as Paul and the apostles were concerned, to suffer for the sake of the gospel was a great privilege. So much so that Paul didn't consider himself worthy. He, he says in verse 8 with some hyperbole, he says that he's less than the least of all God's people. Nevertheless, God has gifted to him the grace of preaching to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And those riches, well, he's already spoken about them in the last two chapters. In summary, they include every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Every possible grace has been lavished upon us in Christ Jesus the Lord. And it was Paul's commission and his privilege to make this revelation, previously unknown, now plain to everyone. And the reason God included the Gentiles, you and I, in Christ Jesus, in this one new man, Paul tells us in verse 10. It's so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Now that word manifold, it means multicolored, it means diverse. And God's intention was that redemption and salvation was not just for the Jew and the few, but for all. For all colours, all ethnicities, every social status, every group that you'd like to imagine. In Christ Jesus, none are excluded. There is no depth of sin that's too deep to be forgiven. And nobody can be so far from God as to be unreachable. For the depths of God's love is only ever limited by the heights of his majesty and his mercy in Christ Jesus the Lord. And that's the declaration that God makes through the church to all rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And that's what they can observe now, that the best is yet to come. But for now, as Paul says in verse 12, in Christ and through faith in Christ, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. Brothers and sisters, can you begin to imagine how absolutely extraordinary that is? We were once dead in our transgressions and our sin. By nature, we were the objects of God's wrath. We were excluded from citizenship in Israel 
But we were foreigners to the covenants and the promise. We were without hope and without God in the world. But now, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace, not only with God, but with one another. And now, we, the outcast, the foreigner and the alien, we now have unfettered access to the Holy of Holies. We can now approach God with freedom and confidence. For not only has the wall of hostility been broken down, God calls us his sons and his daughters. This is not now, you may approach my throne. This is not even welcome in. This is welcome home. And Paul is saying to the Ephesians that this is the message to the Gentiles and the church. This is the message that's been revealed to him and he's been commissioned to proclaim. And as far as Paul is concerned, prison is not a discouragement to him. And his imprisonment shouldn't be a discouragement to the Gentile Christians. For as Paul says in verse 13, whatever he suffered, he did so for their glory. It was for their benefit, their gain, their inclusion in Christ Jesus the Lord. And that's the thing about Paul. See, he's willing to suffer for the Gentiles because their inclusion with the Jews in the one household and temple of God, well, it stood at the heart of the gospel. But for Paul, the inclusion of the Gentiles it is a gospel issue. So, for example, when the Apostle Peter and even Barnabas separated themselves from eating with Gentile Christians, Paul didn't say to them, Now, Peter, that's really rude and ill-mannered. You should know better than that. Instead, he said to them, he said to Peter, he said, Peter, you're not acting in line with the gospel. The gospel no less commits us to God than it does to one another. If we are one new man in Christ Jesus and we're both reconciled to God through the cross, then refusing table fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ is a denial of the gospel. Paul was committed to the Gentiles because he was committed to the gospel. And in his willingness to suffer for their sake and in the grace of Christ, they could glory. For Paul... Imprisonment for the sake of the gospel meant showing forth the sufferings of Christ for the sake of Christ's body, his church. It meant constantly being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Christ's life might be revealed in the mortal bodies of all who believe and trust Jesus. It meant that if being in chains for Christ advanced the gospel, then for Christ's sake he would boast all the more gladly about his weaknesses. Now I have to say that when I read these things about Paul and what he said and done, I find myself oscillating between two errors. The first error that I can convince myself is that this doesn't really have anything to say to me. After all, I've never been struck off a horse or even a pushbike 
and given a direct commission from the risen Lord to evangelise the Gentiles. Uh, Paul's an apostle, I'm not. Evangelism's not my spiritual gift, and Paul couldn't possibly be as busy as I am. He couldn't begin to know the sorts of commitments and responsibilities and time constraints that I have. He's clueless. Now this is an error on numerous levels, but, but mostly it's folly because God does not call me to be Paul. He simply calls me, and you, to be faithful. And at the very least, being faithful means being obedient. For as John says in his first epistle, to love God is to obey his commands. And one clear command of God is to evangelise, to make disciples of all nations, Jew and Gentile alike. And no amount of rationalisation can change, but it's a pretty clear direction. And it's at that point there that I swing to my second error. Realising my guilt, I'm now at least motivated to proclaim the gospel. Motivated to get out there and tell the world what they need to hear, whether they like it or not. And with that sort of motivation, I can muster sufficient grit and sufficient courage to make an evangelistic foray into the world and then make a strategic retreat into the safety of the church. I tell you, it's not easy. It's a burden. But in the classic words of John Wayne, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. Now, I'm not sure which is worse, whether it's avoidance or gritty determination. For one is driven by fear and the other by pride and false bravado. I'm pretty sure, however, that both are equally ineffective. And unlike anything we read of post-Pentecost. And if we go back and reread the verse about loving God and obeying his command, we may notice that in the same verse, in the very next sentence, John says, and his commands are not burdensome. And my most immediate response is to think, well, yes, they are burdensome. What's going wrong here? And what's wrong is that though my instincts are right, my motives are not. For like you, I really do love God. I really do want to obey him and serve him. But when it comes to evangelism, and so much else that's right and good, we're too readily driven by guilt and law rather than grace and love. And I'm not always sure why that's so. But I suspect it's because so often pride blinds us from realising the depths of our own sinfulness. So easily we suppose that we are self-sufficient in all the virtues that we need be the Christian that God calls us to be. The true depth of our sinfulness and therefore the enormous cost of our redemption too rarely crosses our mind. But more than that, sin also stunts our vision of the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
Though we readily rejoice that God has forgiven us our sins and promised us eternal life, too rarely do we reflect beyond that. Our vision of all that God has accomplished in Christ Jesus for us hardly ever reaches the heights that Paul describes in Ephesians. And it's clear that what he describes is not simply a future possibility, but a present reality. If only the eyes of our hearts were enlightened. Now to that end, prayer is an obvious response. But so too is reading and rereading the likes of Ephesians and Colossians and so many other parts of the Bible that extol the riches of God's glorious grace that is freely given us in the Beloved. For I'm convinced, indeed I know for sure, that when we begin to grasp that vision, then obeying God's commands will not be a burden, but a privilege of grace. And evangelism will be the natural impulse of our hearts. For sharing the gospel will be an irrepressible declaration of our love for God, who has lavished his grace upon us. And what we share in love will always be better received than what we deliver in duty. Brothers and sisters, that was the experience of the first century church. And it should be our experience also. For neither sinful hearts nor the gospel have changed in all that time. Indeed, our 21st century is probably more like the first century than any generation since. For now, once again, we're surrounded by hedonism and pluralism and a culture that's decidedly hostile towards the gospel. But that should not surprise us. Jesus told us that it would be so. If anything, we should be surprised that we can feel so at home and so at ease in a culture that thinks biblical Christianity is hateful and bigoted. So when persecution comes your way, and it will if you wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, then don't be afraid. Instead, set apart in your hearts Christ Jesus the Lord. And when we are scorned for the sake of the gospel, then like the apostles who were flogged for speaking in the name of Jesus, we shall rejoice. We'll rejoice that we've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And like the apostles... Day after day, in the court of public opinion, and from house to house, we shall never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news, that Jesus is the Christ. And it's for this reason that we kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And we pray that out of the glorious riches of his inheritance, he might strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being, so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that being rooted and established in love, we may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, 
that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout every generation, forever and ever. Amen.